0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, one of the things that we saw in the first 11 chapters in different ways is of how great God is and how weak and unable man is and how sinful man is. And really, that theme just runs throughout Scripture. Why? Because Scripture is ultimate truth. It never lies. Because Scripture wants to show us who God is. And he is great, and we are not, because he is God. That is the ultimate truth. And humanity needs to understand that again and again and again. Because our sin will cause us to think that we are great, that we are the center of the universe and have no regard for God. In fact, even in salvation, for a person to get saved That is the foundation where we have to begin. That we are nothing, that we are sinful, that we are weak, we cannot save ourselves, and God is great, and God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and it is only through him that anyone can be saved. It humbles man. Why should anyone be accepted in God's sight? Why should God accept you into heaven? Not because of what you've done, not because you are great. The only reason you will be accepted before God is because of King Jesus, because of who he is and what he has done for you. Now this passage here is a passage that foretells the birth of this sovereign king and ruler. In fact, we all know this song, Mary Did You Know, and particularly at this time, you can even hear this, even in the shopping centres, a lot of the times this song being played, Mary Did You Know. It's a song that talks about, uh, you know, that it's a very pensive song that causes us to think about what Mary would have known or not known, and it it questions whether Mary knew that the baby in her hand was one who would walk on water, would heal the the sick and the lame and the blind, that he, this baby that Mary held, was the great I am, the great king of the universe. And, And just a couple of days ago, Cheryl, my wife, she send me a meme, and it was a funny one, but just paraphrasing at least the content of it, it just, you know, as this person is saying, Mary, did you know, this person responds saying, of course Mary knew who this baby was that she held in her hand because the angel told her so. And that's what this passage is about. This is where an angel comes and tells Mary about this baby that she is going to have. Mary did know finally when she held that baby who this baby really was. This is a passage that talks about the sovereign king of the universe. It is a passage that talks about the the greatness of our God, the greatness of our God in fulfilling his promises. It's a passage that shows the greatness of God shown in this in the very birth and conception of this little baby named Jesus. It's a passage that, that will again remind us of who Jesus is and how great he is. And I pray that as we look at this passage, that as believers we would be reminded afresh, this is whom we have put our trust in. And it would encourage us to further trust in him and to cling on to him and to rejoice in him and to live to make him known to others. And I pray that if there are those here that do not know Jesus, would know something of who Jesus is and it would cause you to turn to him today. I've titled this morning's sermon as the of the, so, the birth of the sovereign king, or the foretelling of the birth of the sovereign king. And we're gonna look at this in two sections. First, we're gonna look at the announcement in verses 26 through to 33. And then we're gonna look at the reception, the reception of this birth announcement in verses 34 to 38. So let's f- first of all look at the announcement. Verse 26. It reads, in the sixth month, let me just actually just stop there for a moment. In the section just prior to this, the angel Gabriel, she's, uh, he has come, to an old couple, really to an old man named Zechariah. And the angel has told him that his wife Elizabeth, that even though she is old and she is barren, she's, that, he, that even though she is past childbearing age, she would bear a son named John, the person that we would come to know as John the Baptist. And this John would be the forerunner, the the herald, the one who would prepare the way for the coming ruler and Lord. And so now in this passage that we're looking at, we come to the announcement of the birth of this sovereign king, of this Messiah. And what you will see is, as you read through Luke chapter 1, that there are similarities between the announcement of the conception of John and the announcement of the conception of Jesus. But there are also significant differences. Now six months have passed into Elizabeth's pregnancy with baby John. And the angel Gabriel, so God is already working, his redemptive plan is moving forward. And now the same angel Gabriel appears again, and this time to a young virgin named Mary. A few differences to note here between the two accounts. In Gabriel's first appearing to Zechariah, who was Zechariah, he was a priest. So he was a significant person. And where did the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah the priest in the temple in Jerusalem for the announcement of baby John. See, the, the temple, as we would know, this was the center of worship for the Israelites, and Jerusalem was the important capital city of Israel. So the place, too, where the angel Gabriel appeared to before was also significant, as well as the person Now, six months later, when Gabriel appears, he goes past the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, and he goes down to the region of Galilee to a small town called Nazareth. Now, as far as places go during those times, Nazareth was a very insignificant place. It was a small town. It's never even mentioned once in the Old Testament. You know, you could think of it as some remote place in Australia, you know, as we would call as whoop-whoop, somewhere in the middle of nowhere where nobody wants to go and live. There's hardly any people living there. It's a poor place. It was a place out in the outskirts and it was a place where Roman soldiers and merchants and traders would frequently pass through and it had a lot of Gentile influence. So this was a place that was also looked down by the people, by the Israelites. In fact, you get a sense of what the Israelites thought of in the words of Nathaniel in John 1 verse 46, where he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was such an insignificant place, a place of bad repute. But the angel Gabriel, this time, this is the place that he goes to, to this insignificant little town, this insignificant little village called Nazareth. And then on top of that, the person he appears to is a young virgin girl named Mary. You say, who's Mary? Uh, 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 You know, what do we know about her, at least at this point? She's a nobody. Absolute nobody. And most likely, she would have been poor as well, considering she was living in this small village. And it says here that, she, that she's a virgin and she's engaged to a man named Joseph. Now in those days, the engagement, that term had a very stronger connotation than it does now, a stronger bond between the two engaged couples, two individuals who are engaged. See, because in those days, you couldn't break off an engagement without a divorce. And that too, that divorce would be only for something serious like sexual immorality or something like that. And in those days, people got married when they were quite young. You know, Mary and Joseph, uh, you know, would have been teenagers. You know, she would have been like 12, 13, 14, something like that. And, and Joseph would have been just a few years older. they both you know, young teenagers. So this, this young couple is engaged, but it also says that Mary was a virgin, meaning she was morally pure. She hasn't had any sexual relations. Now, it also mentions here that the man she's engaged to was from the house of David meaning that he was from the line of David, that he was part of that Davidic line, and it's dropping a small hint here. Interestingly, we know from other parts of Scripture as well that Mary is also from the line of David. So the implication, the child that they would have would also be from the line of David. But no one at this point is particularly looking at this young, insignificant couple in the middle of nowhere, both from the line of David and saying, could it be through them? I mean, this long promised Messiah, this long promised ruler of the world that is going to come? No one is saying that. No one is thinking that. They're just an insignificant people living in a no-name place, but God is going to use them mightily. And we saw the same pattern of God working like this last week as well, didn't we? From Genesis 11, as we looked at Terah's family. When we saw about Abram and Sarai and how they were just so lost, So insignificant. And we saw that God is, you know, it's his regular pattern of using insignificant nobodies, even very young people to do great things. God has a way of taking the most obscure things, the the most... um, the most powerless things according to this world, even the powerless people and the foolish people to do his great works. And what it points to is the greatness of God. Because it puts on display the supreme power and the glory of God. Because there's no other way something, something as grand could come out of insignificant, foolish people uh, other than God's doing. So it points to God's supreme power and glory. And so now God is going to bring about his redemptive plan through this poor, young, insignificant girl. Now verse 28, the angel now appears to Mary And it says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. Greetings. Or it could even be translated as as hail. You know, this is the normal way of greeting in that time. It's like in the, the Jewish way where they would say shalom to everyone. This was another way of greeting each other. I I guess you could even say it's the equivalent of saying hello to one another in our day and age. Now this phrase, greetings, oh favoured one, it was translated many years ago in the the Latin Vulgate, as it's called. It's the Latin translation of the New Testament as Hail Mary, full of grace. That's the Latin translation. Hail Mary, full of grace. Now that's a common phrase well known in Roman Catholicism. Now, the issue is not so much the Latin translation as much as it is the interpretation of the translation, of what it meant. See, according to Roman Catholicism, they take it to mean that Mary is full of grace. Meaning that she is this reservoir of grace. She's so full of it, and therefore, she has now the ability to bestow grace to others. Just like God can. But this couldn't be further from the truth of God's Word. That's not what this passage is saying. In fact, where it says, Mary favored one, it's it's in in the passive tense. You could literally translate it as the having been favoured one. This is something that God has done to her. And the idea is this, that God has especially chosen Mary to be the recipient of his sovereign grace in a very special way. Now, it doesn't mean that therefore Mary has some kind of special status above other people. Mary did not in any way merit this favor from God, this grace from God. It was undeserved. I mean, it's just like what we learned in Genesis as we looked at Noah, where it said Noah found favor with God. It had nothing to do with Noah. No merit on Noah's part but God had shown his favor to Noah and that's why he lived in a different way and that's why he was used by God. And so similarly, God has shown favor and grace to Mary. There is nothing about her to commend her to God. Nothing about her status, nothing about who she is to commend her to God. She's just like anybody else. In fact, she's just a sinner like anybody else. And I would say, socially, in some senses, she's actually less than other people around because she was from Nazareth. But the reason why God chose Mary is precisely because she was nothing, so that God's power and God's grace and God's glory would be magnified through her. See, because God could have taken a big priest like Zechariah, some famous person, some significant person. God doesn't do that. No, he goes to this obscure land, goes to this young, obscure young woman and picks her and chooses her and decides to work through her. So the angel Gabriel is not greeting Mary as the giver of grace. But he's saying, oh, the the recipient of God's grace. And then Gabriel also adds, the Lord is with you. This language of the the Lord is with you is, is language of God's presence. It's language of God's presence with his covenant people to to do what God is calling them to do and to protect them in the midst of all that. When you think of Moses, when God said to Moses, I will be with you to do this task. When God called Joshua and said, I will be with you to do this task. When he called Gideon and he said, I will be with you to do this task. And it's the same thing here. that God is going to be specially, going to be with Mary to do a certain task. Now, this is not the kind of greeting that a young, insignificant person, a peasant girl from Nazareth would expect to hear. So verse 29 says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She was greatly troubled by the way she was greeted. GREATLY troubled, meaning greatly perplexed, astonished, shocked, confused, and even a little afraid. See, Mary knows she's a nobody. Nobody in the world around her would ever take notice of her as somebody significant. She's young, she's poor, and from a place called Nazareth that nobody likes. And she's also a sinner. Mary recognizes all this. And so she's, she's thinking something like, why would I ever get a greeting like this? that the Lord has shown his special favor and grace to me? That the Lord would be especially with me? For what reason? I mean, what's going on? What's going to happen? She's just blown away by this entire greeting. And so verse 30 It says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The angel reassures her and tells her, Mary, there's nothing for you to be troubled about, nothing for you to be anxious or even afraid about. Even though you are nothing, according to worldly standards, even though you are of humble circumstances, still, Mary, you are the object of God's undeserved favour and grace. And because of God's undeserved favour, here's what's going to happen to you. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus. The angel saying, as a result of God's favor and grace, Mary, you are going to have a son and you're going to call him Jesus. Now, the name Jesus means salvation or the Lord saves. This is the one who would save his people from their sins and from every kind of oppression. This is the one who was promised of first in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and remove the curse. This is the one who would save the world. This is the promised offspring of the woman, the promised seed. And this baby's name, Jesus itself, tells us what he is going to do. Now the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. And it was a pretty common name at that time. And you say, why? Because everyone having a child is wondering why why this was such a common name, because every time somebody had a child, they would, you know, it was commonly, they would call their child as Joshua or, or Jesus, because they're wondering if their child, if this child now is going to be the savior of the world. So maybe Mary didn't fully understand at this point the significance of the baby just with the name Jesus, because it was so common, even though its meaning meant the Lord saves or salvation. The angel further elaborates. Verse 32. He says, he will be great. Now regarding John the Baptist, again, compare and contrast. The angel had told Zechariah that he would be great, that John would be great before the Lord. But here the angel says that Jesus will be great. No reference to before the Lord. He will simply be great in of himself. That there is an inherent greatness about him because of who this Jesus is. And it says he will be great and we will be called the son of the most high. Now, the term most high is a term from the Old Testament, which refers to God himself. It's a reference to the one true living God as the most high God. And we see it first in Genesis 14:18, where Melchizedek is called as the priest of the God most high. And so now when it says that Mary's baby is going to be the son of the Most High, immediately for the Hebrew mind, the son bears the essence and the the quality of the father. Like father, like son. So essentially as she's listening to this, he's going to be the son of the Most High. Mary understands this baby is going to be the of the same essence and the quality as the Most High God. In other words, this baby is going to be equal to God. He will be God's own son. This Jesus is really God in human flesh. It doesn't stop there. The last part of verse 32 and 33 give us some more details in this announcement about Jesus. Jesus. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Remember, there was already a hint there that this child would be from the kingly line of David because his parents were already from the kingly line of David. So this son, this son of the Most High will ultimately be the one who will fulfill the promise that was made with King David many, many, many years ago. And you'll see the details about that in Second Samuel 7. It's what's called as the Davidic covenant, the covenant made with David. And just even from the passage we read uh, this morning, just as I opened up from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Isaiah had also prophesied this Davidic king would be born from a virgin. That this, this Davidic king, this ultimate Davidic king would be a forever king. That his kingdom would be forever. Every other kingdom would come and go. Every other nation would come and go. But this king would be forever. No one will be able to overthrow him. His kingdom would last forever. This king will bring eternal rest from all enemies and from all oppression. This king will bring shalom and peace and prosperity. And with the rule of this king, justice and righteousness would reign forever. this would be the king of Israel. In fact, other passages also tell us, like Daniel 7, that this person would not just be the king of Israel, he would be the king over all nations, over all time. Essentially, this king would be the final king who's the king over the entire universe, and he would reign forever. And this baby Jesus is that King that Mary is going to have. Now I want you to think with me just for a moment, the context in which this is written. It's been 600 years since anybody has sat on the throne of David. It's been 600 years since Israel has had any kind of Davidic king. I mean, Israel was taken over by the Babylonians, then Persia, then, and now they're under Rome when the angel is speaking and, and saying this to Mary. But God, despite all this, is going to fulfill covenant promises. He's going to bring about this promised savior of the world. He is going to bring about this ultimate Davidic king who will rule over all and who will bring a kingdom of peace and righteousness, a kingdom that will reign forever. And by the way, this king who is not just a man, but he is also God. Without a shadow of doubt, it's pointing to the fact that this Jesus that Mary will have is the long-awaited Messiah, the sovereign king of the universe. And he is going to come into this world through an obscure young virgin from Nazareth, still under the tight rule of a Roman Empire. You know, what this shows, just even looking at this, it shows the sovereign power of God over everything. It shows how God has been sovereign over time to, as he's bringing about his promises, how he's been sovereign over history, how he's been sovereign over nations and even individuals. It shows his sovereign power to, to promise something and to bring it to pass according to his time and his plan. See, the fact that Israel is right now under the strong rule of the Roman Empire, that's not any obstacle for God to bring about his plan of salvation. The fact that God sovereignly chooses an insignificant young woman like Mary for his purposes, what does that point to? Again, it points to his power to accomplish his plan of salvation in spite of human weakness. Strength, weakness, nation, individual, time, history, God is over them all. Nothing can stand in the way of God accomplishing what he has purposed. So that's the announcement regarding the birth of the sovereign king. Now let's just look at the reception, how this message is now received in verses 34 to 38. Verse 34 reads, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? Now again, just comparing and contrast with what happened with Zechariah and the birth announcement there. When Zechariah was told that his wife was in her old age and would have a son named John, Verse 18 of Luke 1 says, this is what he said, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. I mean, the angel has just told him, no, you're gonna have a son. And really by Zechariah asking that question, he's really asking, I mean, is this really gonna happen? Since he and his wife were both of old age, is this really going to happen, what God has said? And what it shows there is that he was doubting. He wasn't believing. And then verse 20 confirms this because then the angel rebukes him and makes him mute because he did not believe till he has the child. Now Mary also has a question. But this question, it's not a doubt. There's no unbelief on Mary's part. Her question is, how will this be since I'm a virgin? See, Mary understands fully well that the angel is not talking about some sometime in the distant future after she will uh, fully get married to Joseph and they will come to live together and have relations. No, she understands that the... Conception will take place sometime now, sometime immediately. So she's not doubting the fact whether or not she will have a baby. She fully believes this by faith that she will have a baby according to what the angel has said. Her question is more the how, the mechanics of it. I mean, how is she going to get pregnant since she is still a virgin? How is she going to conceive since she has had no physical relations with a man? I mean, there's been no precedent to this. I mean, at least previously in biblical history, there have been couples who have been old and barren, and God supernaturally gave them a child. But a virgin conception? That's unheard of. I mean, it defies human logic in every way. And this has never happened before, never ever happened before. You could even say a virgin conception is really one step greater than a a barren woman conceiving. So Mary is not doubting, but she's just asking, how is this gonna happen? Verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here's what the angel is saying. This conception, this, this pregnancy It won't happen by natural means. It'll happen through supernatural means. Now the language of the Holy Spirit coming on you and the Most High overshadowing you, you you know, this does not mean that somehow there's some sexual connotations here between God and this young virgin woman as some liberals have tried to claim. I mean, that's just plain blasphemy It's just trying to make God, trying to bring him down to a human level. The term of God overshadowing you, you know, the interesting is, uh, it's the same related term that we learnt about in Genesis 1-2, where it says that the Holy Spirit was hovering or brooding over the face of the waters. It's a term that speaks of God's presence and his powerful, miraculous work. So the point is this, over here. Just like God, through the Holy Spirit, created the world out of nothing by his power, so God will create this child by his power. That's the point here. So there's even a link here between that old creation, that original creation, and a new creation. That this is a new life, that this is a life unlike any before, and he will pave the way for a new creation to come about. That will be free from sin and oppression and everything else. And so if this child is going to be conceived in this way, in such a supernatural way, this is the only conclusion. The angel says, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In other words, this child, again Mary, is the Holy Son of God. He's morally perfect and he's uniquely set apart. He's separate from everything else and everyone else that has ever been and ever will be. He is God, the eternal Son, the second person of the triune God. This baby Jesus is God, the Son, taking on human flesh. And he is fully God and fully man. I mean, what an extraordinary supernatural conception, isn't it, this virgin birth? Now, just to stop for a moment, why is this virgin birth so important? I mean, there are many reasons, but let me just give you one. See, man ever since Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God is born with a sin nature. And this sin nature is passed down from one generation to another. And because this baby Jesus did not come by natural means, having a human father, his human nature also then, uh, there's no sin in it. He does not have a sin nature, and therefore he was holy as the God-man, a unique, set-apart baby. Now, I just wanna point out again, you you know, Roman Catholicism, they hold to what is called as Mary's Immaculate Conception where they believe that Mary was sinless and therefore conceived a sinless child, Jesus. But again, I I think it's missing the whole point of the virgin birth. I mean, there are many other reasons, if you think about it, for Mary to be sinless, one of these two things need to be true. Either Mary herself would need to be born supernaturally by virgin birth, just like Jesus. Or she would have to have sinless parents. Neither of them are true of Mary. And just by that, Mary is not sinless. Jesus was born supernaturally by virgin birth. It was God's doing. And that's why his human nature was inherently sinless. Jesus is God incarnate, fully God, fully man. And here's the thing. You say, why did God go you know, to such extent to come as a human babe, to become fully God, fully man? Why did Jesus have to become like this? Here's the reason. Because Jesus being God, and and in one sense he had to be God, and no one other than God, because if this Jesus was other than God, he would not be able to pay the price of our sin and take on himself the punishment for our sins. At the same time, if Jesus was not man, he wouldn't be able to die in our place because God can never die. So the virgin birth is is something very important that we need to understand and hold on to because you take away the virgin birth, you take away who really Jesus is and you take away Jesus, you take away salvation. And really, again, what the virgin birth of Jesus shows, as I said even at the start, is that man is unable to save himself. That God had to intervene and come down and take human nature to save mankind from their sin. Mankind could never do it. Man could never get out of that grip of sin because it was inherent in man. But the virgin birth also shows the extraordinary power of God to overcome any human ability to bring about the salvation of sinful man. Now to further assure Mary the angel, Mary, the angel points her in the direction of her relative Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth is living a a bit further away And she doesn't know that Elizabeth is pregnant now until the angel tells her. This is what the angel tells her in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. The angel is saying, you know Elizabeth, that old relative of yours, the one who's called barren? By the way, she's six months pregnant. And the point is this, if God can make, this is God's doing, and if God can make Elizabeth a barren woman in her old age to conceive, then God can also bring life in Mary's virgin womb. God's work is already shown to be working in her relative's life, and so God's work will also powerfully work in Mary's life. Yes, the virgin conception is is greater than conception from a barren womb, for sure. But then again, everything about this baby is so different, so other than, so great. Because he is a human babe other than anything the world has ever seen. And the point is this, God is going to bring this to pass Mary, who was a virgin, would have this child. But why? The angel says in verse 37 For nothing will be impossible with God. This is to show the the sovereign power of God, to show his greatness to magnify his greatness, to show his glory. This is who God is. Man is unable, God is able. Man is weak, God is great. Man is nothing, God is everything. God's sovereign power is able to overcome everything. What is humanly impossible is yet possible with God. Whatever God has planned, whatever God has willed, whatever God has promised, he will bring it to pass. Why? Because he is sovereign God and ruler. The impossibility of man ever being able to save himself from sin and the curse, God is going to overcome that impossibility by another impossibility of a virgin birth where God himself will come down in the flesh as God-man to save sinful mankind. So everything that God has said will come to pass. What's Mary's response to this? Verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a humble response, isn't it? I mean, although what Gabriel told Mary seemed humanly impossible, Mary never questions it. In fact, just think about what this would mean for Mary to be pregnant now outside of marriage. I mean, what would it look like to Joseph, the man she's engaged to? It would look like she committed adultery. I mean, everyone would have a wrong view of her. This was gonna cost her greatly. But she doesn't raise any issues. And she's not afraid but she's fully trusting in the word of God. She takes God at his word, and she says, God, I am your slave. She's essentially saying, Lord, not as I will, but as you will. Why? Because she recognizes who God is, that he is the sovereign king, he's the sovereign Lord. He is the God of impossibility. And if God has chosen her as his instrument to further his plan, then she's going to trust in God and his plan. And I would say in some sense, she's also overcome by the goodness of God. Of how God is going to bring all this about. I mean, who would have thought of all this? Only God can, and only God can overcome all these obstacles. And even if it cost her everything, she understands that God is not doing this to harm her. God is doing this to bring about his plan of redemption for his glory and also for her good. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two ways, really, as we've listened to this, to respond to this. You can either say, this doesn't make any sense doesn't seem logical to me. I mean, a virgin birth, that's impossible. It's illogical. Or you can say, I receive by faith that this is true and I take God at his word and I believe what he says is true and I believe who Jesus is and I believe what Jesus has done on the cross. If you throw away what you have heard this morning and you do not trust in Jesus as the sovereign Lord and Savior, then let me tell you, friend, that God says that it will lead to your ultimate ruin and you will be thrown under into the lake of fire and bear the just wrath of God. But let me also tell you, friend, there is still a way for you to be made right with God. It's not by believing in Mary. It's not by believing in your own efforts. It's not by coming to a gathering like this, going to church or praying a prayer or going for a pilgrimage somewhere or doing sacrificial things to others. You can never save yourself. And this is another passage that should remind you of that. But here's the good news. God can save you. The sovereign king, the God of impossibility, he can save you because he is the one who came in the form of a little babe named Jesus Christ and then died on the cross for sinful people like you and me so that you and I can be made right with him. If you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, if you'd like to know more about who Jesus is, please come and talk to me or Donnie or one of the members of this church, and we'd love to speak to you. For those of us who are believers, I trust that this would remind you again afresh of the greatness of our God. To fulfill his promises according to his appointed time. And there are even more promises about the coming of the Lord that are yet to be fulfilled. That it would remind you, that it has reminded you afresh of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the Son of God, he is God incarnate, he is the one who was born by virgin birth, he is the one who has come to save you and I. He's our Savior and our Lord. And I trust, as you, as you are reminded by this, this Christmas season, you would, this would encourage you further to, to live for this sovereign ruler and good God and to rejoice in him and to make merry to him and even tell others about this sovereign king and ruler and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great God you are the sovereign king who humbled himself as a human babe to save wretched sinners like us so that ultimately it would magnify your greatness, your power, and your glory. We thank you, Father, for for saving us this way. And we pray that even this Christmas season, we would live remembering who Jesus is, how great he is, and live for his glory and his glory alone. And we pray in his precious name, amen.